I think it's not that people are actually always a narcissist. I think uh, they get themselves in trouble or they, they kind of back themselves into a corner where they, they threw out that accusation and they're not allowed to retract it because then uh, they would lose credibility. So maybe, maybe at some level we're not as people aren't as narcissistic as we think they are. You're listening to the Texas family law insiders podcast. Your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, attorney Holly Draper. Today we're excited to welcome Chris Meyer to the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast. Chris is a 2005 graduate of Texas A&M University and a 2014 graduate of Thurgood Marshall School of Law. He's the owner of Christopher Meyer Law Firm, PLLC, in Sugarland, Texas. Prior to law school, Chris served in the United States Army as a military intelligence officer in Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's the past commander of Disabled American Veterans Chapter 233 in Fort Bend County, which helps veterans who are struggling. Chris's practice now focuses on high-conflict divorce, child custody, and family violence cases. Thanks so much for joining us yeah. today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. I really do appreciate it. Okay. Well, let me, if you don't mind, can I tell you a little bit about myself? Absolutely. Uh, you already did a little bit, but yeah. Okay. So like a lot of young people, I uh, graduated and I got married young after graduation, probably uh, things moved very quickly because I was commissioning and going into military and in a relationship and going str- straight into the global war on terror. I'm, I'm just going to be real and honest. Um, it was a very stressful relationship. Uh, the global war on terror was stressful. And, you know, I, I have empathy, uh, you know, for, you know, towards my you know ex, what happened. And I understand things were, you got to really have appreciation for the circumstantial complexity, but, you know, things that work out. And after Iraq, um, things dissolved and I found out I was a disabled veteran based off of what happened in Iraq and, you know, after what happened after coming home. And so uh, it was PTSD. And um, I went to, you know, Thurgood Marshall and I uh, graduated. Uh, But while I was in law school, I did uh, meet my, I guess my second wife and uh, we had uh, started a small law firm together. So family, I started slowly breaking away from probate and estate planning, which was what my wife was doing. The law firm, after COVID, hap- uh, COVID took off, oh my gosh, that's when domestic violence went through the roof during the moratorium. And it was just my, my it was just nonstop phone calls. So I, uh, I started Chris Meyer Law Firm and it's just exclusively family law and uh, all of it's in litigation. There's so that's that's what I do, I, and I have fun, and I I, uh, I I handle a lot of domestic violence cases. I I do not help uh, aggressors. I do not help abusers. I tell them I'm sorry. Uh, I only help when it comes to the domestic violence. I only advocate for victims, and that also helps me you know sleep at night because I I know it's a very messy area, but I'm I'm able to sleep well at night knowing that I'm advocating for people who are vulnerable. So I'm, I'm something I'm very proud about, and that's something I talk about in my podcast. What's it called and where can people find it if they're interested? Okay. Okay. So you go to my website, uh, Chris Meyer Law Firm. There's like a little YouTube link at the top, right? You just click on it and, you know, hit the subscribe button. That would be great. Uh, Now, I originally, when I started doing my podcast, I mostly talked about the family law, the process, what's the material and substantial change, drafting an appellate brief, all that stuff. And, you know, it was fine, but I, I wasn't getting a lot of views. And then I started talking more about narcissism and emotional abuse and oh my gosh, that's when like everything started shooting straight up. I mean, I started getting like, I, I think I, I made a little 
you uh, short podcast on just what is emotional abuse. I think I think I like eighteen thousand views in a short amount of time. It was like wow. Whereas uh, some of the other things were getting not as many. So I was like wow. It's like so I definitely I'm definitely able to see where all the clicks are. So I, I started talking more about like narcissism and uh, empathy. And uh, if you if you really look at my podcast, I uh, I kind of go into the emotional psychological aspect of family law. I talk about what is a or I divide parties into two major groups of family law, like narcissists and empaths. A narcissist, in my opinion, is defined as somebody who is not able to uh, view a situation uh, presently without judgment, and uh, they're not able to see somebody else's pain, what someone else is going through. In other words, just not able to empathize. They, they think mainly about themselves, or they they prioritize their own emotions over others, or they just don't. They're just not able to see or not able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. And um, I see that a lot in family law, uh, spouses who are just not willing to co-parent or uh, they they do not see why they should agree to a property division that's fair. They think, well, if something happened to them, they were they should be entitled to more and just just they're not a- able to kind of see the bigger picture. And then there's the other side, which are the empaths, the people who are able to be present in the moment and observe a situation without judgment in the present. And also they're able to see somebody else's pain uh, and maybe be able to walk around in their shoes based off of talking to the person and observing uh, other nonverbal cues and body language. So if I, if I see some, like I, I'm a, a CPS lawyer, uh, I can, I'm, I'm a court appointed to represent a parent who might be addicted to drugs. I can, because I, I consider myself a very empathetic person. I, I feel I have the, uh, the learned ability to uh, have a better idea of what somebody is going through and understand them. And when, I, when I'm talking to maybe a, a CPS parent and you know, they're telling me they're not using drugs anymore, but their their body language is telling me something else. You know, what am I going to believe? And um, also, I, I think a lot of judges won't admit it, but they, they're also able to greatly empathize uh, and also understand um, what someone is experiencing based off of nonverbal uh, cues. So, for example, I'm, I was in CPS court uh, about a month ago. I think he, you know, the judge was able to see the uh, one of the clients, one of the parents who was addicted to drugs. They they claim they weren't using drugs, but they're looking down at the floor, looking to right. They're not facing. They're leaning back. They're crossing their arms. They're they're visibly shaking. There's a quiver in their voice. You know, the body language was test basically testifying that yes, I did something wrong, but verbally they're saying no, I didn't do anything wrong. So, uh, I, I think that's a very valuable skill in family law. I'm able to just, you know, talk to people. And also the cool thing is um, not as many cases go to trial as you think, because when I'm talking to clients in mediation, I'm able to immediately read, read them. And I kind of understand what their concerns are. And I understand where the, the focus points are, where the targets are, what I need to focus on more, what's less important and uh, get them to um, our, get them a outcome that they're comfortable with and while being mindful of what they're actually what they actually need or want in the divorce, so that that ability is uh, 
come in handy. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the fact that I was doing the podcast and I was studying what an empath is, what a narcissist is. I'm doing a lot of reading on body language and things like that. So just the fact that I developed the, the podcast and now that we're getting close to 200 episodes um, and there's so much content on how to read somebody, it's it's actually created a, a valuable skill for me. So we wanted to talk a little bit about some various psychological and abuse issues that family lawyers come into contact with on a very regular basis. Um, the first one, you t- you've touched a little bit on already, but narcissism. Um, if I had a dollar for every potential client who called up and said, do you know how to deal with a narcissist? My ex isn't, oh, my ex is a narcissist, my wife's a narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> I would be yeah. retired now because yeah, right. everybody thinks their ex is a narcissist and they assume that they're the only one and that, you know, you is this family lawyer familiar with narcissism? Obviously, every family lawyer with any experience is familiar with narcissism because it's such a prevalent topic that comes up all the time. And I mean, obviously we have the psychological diagnosis definition of narcissism, but when we're looking at it in the family context, what exactly is narcissism? Uh, Well, I think what happens is maybe we have two spouses, they hate each other, they both accusing each other of being a narcissist. I I think it's just maybe no, okay. I want to be open-minded. So maybe there, maybe there are narcissists, but at the same time, if I'm going to be open-minded, maybe they're not actually a narcissist. Maybe the marriage has just become dissolved and we need to be empathetic and mindful of that. So, but if, if you need to talk to your client and find some common ground with them, be like, yeah, your, your, your spouse over there, they're a narcissist. Okay. I, I agree with you, but I think what happens is in family law, uh, it's kind of a psychological thing. It's, when one spouse makes accusations in a court filing, whether it's a gray area, whether it did happen or did not happen, I, I think maybe they, they kind of unintentionally back themselves into a corner and now they're stuck with that accusation. Or maybe they said, uh, you know, my, my spouse was abusive and they went into detail on all the abuse. And then, but it was, they were upset at the time, but it wasn't as bad. There was abuse, there was emotional abuse that should not be tolerated, but it was maybe a little, they went a little overkill, but because that accusation's already been put out there, they feel they're stuck with it, and they can't uh, they can't come back later and say, "Oh, I, I lied to the court or I lied to my friend." They can't do that. So now they're just kind of backed in the corner. And the other spouse, because they're having these accusations hurled at them, they have to protect themselves. So they, well, in a weird way, they're kind of match and mirroring. They're they're throwing the same missiles that were thrown at them. They're throwing back, and now they're both backed into a corner. Uh, they're stuck with these. Ac- they they feel they're stuck with these accusations, and they think because it was went into some kind of court filing or uh, required disclosure that was electronically served the opposing counsel. They think they they can't back away from these statements anymore, so they're just kind of stuck there. Uh, the good news is the judge is going to make you go to mediation anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and then we're gonna, just going to mediation, and yeah, okay, I understand. You, you're saying the husband's saying the wife is a narcissist, wife's saying the husband's narcissist. Okay, fine. Let's just talk about the property division. So, I mean, I, I think it's not that people are actually always a narcissist. I think uh, they get themselves in trouble or they they kind of back themselves into a corner where they, they threw out that accusation and they're not allowed to retract it because then uh, they would lose credibility. So maybe maybe at some level we're not as, people aren't as narcissistic as we think they are. Uh, they just-, just well, think I think probably 
at least 80% of divorce clients throw that out about their spouse. And mm-hmm. the percentage of people of those that are actually would be diagnosed narcissist, oh. even if they haven't, assuming they have not been, but would be, is probably really small in the grand scheme. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I just think if, let's just say in a, in a parallel universe uh, where, you know, Chris Meyer is not happy and uh, says, uh, files for divorce and says my wife is abusive or emotionally abusive. She's economic controlling. She, you know, uh, uses the children, isolates me, minimizes my concerns, denies the abuse, you know, uh, all these things. And then I, I'm like, uh, she sees that I made these accusations because I made them. I, I can't really get away from it anymore. I, I, I've already adopted that statement. I have to move forward with it. Otherwise, if I retract it, I could lose credibility. So she's going to throw the same thing at me. So we're really, were we ever really narcissists? Or maybe we're just mad at each other and things got a little too emotional. And that's why we now we need to get lawyers involved and hopefully just get just go to mediation. Fine. I, I get it's emotional, but let's try to uh, but narcissism, like true narcissism. I mean, when I all, most of my clients, I mean, they're mostly just good people. It's just the marriage has become dissolved. I, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I don't think they're anywhere near the criteria for a narcissist, but that's what the other side is saying, whatever. But it, at the end of the day, what we can't agree on is that they need to get divorced. So, so what um, advice, you know, if you have a client who swears their husband or wife is a narcissist and, you know, maybe some of the trip traits that they are discussing do line up with narcissistic tendencies. What advice do you give those clients about dealing with their potentially narcissistic spouse during a divorce? Okay. Um, I encourage them. It's cheaper to co-parent, cheaper to co-parent. I mean, you, we can, I understand they're denying you access because they, they have this entitled attitude or whatever. I'm so I just explained the process. Like, look, we can go back to court. We can follow an enforcement uh, request sanctions, follow restraining order based on this behavior. I, I just explained to them what their options are. And uh, depending on the facts, um, if, if someone is a truly like a domestic violence victim from like an, uh, someone with serious narcissism disorder, uh, you know, these need to be protected. I agree. We should protect them. But uh, so, sometimes if it's just maybe a situation got a little too emotional, I'll, I'll remind them about the how big my trial retainer is and kind of help manage expectations and remind them that, OK, I understand the marriage has become dissolved, but we we, we got to act in the best interest of this child. You guys need to learn how to co-parent. You know, I, I just try to kind of bring them back to the present, bring them back to reality a little bit. And uh, I, th- I think I'm pretty good at that. This episode of the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm, providing family law appellate representation across Texas. For more information, visit draperfirm.com or call 469-715-6801. So one of the things that you've mentioned a few times and often goes hand in hand with the narcissist allegation is emotional abuse. So that's a really broad term. And we see definitely see a lot of emotional abuse happening in the divorce context. What are some examples of different types of emotional abuse? Oh, gosh. Uh, What I look for in emotional abuse, I look for it's called the um, Duluth model or the power and control will. Uh, It's a common model used for uh, training professionals in domestic, you know, uh, violence. institutions like maybe uh, battered, uh, shelters for battered women 
or uh, law firms that specifically deal with domestic violence, but it's called the Duluth model or also known as the power control will. It's on my website, check it out. Uh, but emotional abuse um, under the Duluth model, and I, I'm not gonna try to claim that I know every criteria for emotional abuse, but I will, I'm, I only stick to the Duluth model. It's like, if you're putting somebody, putting somebody down, putting somebody down, uh, typically verbally, uh, uh, making them, that's number one, making them feel bad about themselves. That would be two, calling them names. Uh, and there are a lot of choice words people can use between the spouses, making them think they're crazy, um, AKA gaslighting. And I can, I've got an entire podcast just on that. But uh, also uh, the fifth criteria I look for is playing mind games with the other spouse. Uh, number six is humiliating the other spouse. There's tons of ways to humiliate a spouse. I'm not, I don't have to go into that, but, and then the last criteria is just um, making them feel guilty. So th those are the seven things I look for when I'm assessing if emotional abuse occurred. And also if you look at the power and control my, on my will on my website, the emotional abuse well, it's a will, right? The, in the center of the will is, the, is power and control. And then you have emotional abuse, uh, isolation, uh, intimidation, minimizing, denying, blaming, using children, economic abuse, male privilege, coercion, and threats. That's all in the gray part of my power and control will. The reason it's gray is because it's a bit of a gray area. Now, the outer ring of the power and control will is violence like physical violence and, and sexual violence so that's that part of the power and control was black and white because it is more objective it's more provable in court whereas the emotional abuse uh yeah we might be able to show some text messages to the judge but honestly how how much how big of an impact is it really going to have on the property division anyway so it's better to just figure it out in mediation yeah so before we leave the emotional abuse do you have tips for attorneys when they are dealing with a client who has been emotionally abused because i think this is a very much more prevalent than having a, a true narcissist in a case mm -hmm. is having a history of emotional abuse and that's probably a relatively a high percentage of the clients saying my ex is a narcissist really it's their ex has been emotionally abusing them um i don't for ethical reasons uh sometimes people come to me and they they're thinking about getting a divorce but for for ethical reasons i don't push them say hey your wife was emotionally abusive yeah let's get a divorce no i don't i don't do that because it's such a personal decision and people have different tolerance levels like i'll be honest with you before i i, I went to iraq i i had a very thick skin i could i could take a, a we called it excuse my french an ass chewing from drill instructors i mean and it was it was like water on a duck's back it would just slide off who cares uh, i could handle the emotional abuse um but after having experienced what I experienced, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from the service, my that thick skin I, ref I mentioned went away. I, I have a like I had a paper thin skin for a long time, and it, it was it was hurtful being emotionally abused, and it, it it sucks, and it causes it can trigger it can trigger other things. And uh, somebody if, if you emotionally abuse somebody enough, they they could become violent. You know, I mean, you don't just go poking the bear and then. Uh, expect nothing to happen. So, it, I mean, emotional abuse is very, very serious, but it, unfortunately, it's, it doesn't always have a you know, major impact. 
on the the outcome of the case. But what, what for and again for ethical reasons, I don't just because somebody's emotionally abused, I don't tell them they should get a divorce. I let them make that decision. I just kind of explain the process and what they're looking at financially and how much weight the court is going to give the emotional abuse. And also one thing, uh, one reason people like me is I'm, I'm really good at managing expectations. I don't, one thing I never do is I never overpromise because I've overpromised and I end up under delivering. So I, I underpromise and over deliver. And I, I'll, I'll just be honest from the get go. And it's not that I'm intentionally under promising. I'm just like, no, the, the emotional abuse, unfortunately, isn't going to have the as great of an impact as you would think it would. But even though you might be able to prove it, it's just something we're going to have to get settled in mediation. We'll go to mediation. They're going to accuse you of being an abuser, too. Uh, we don't really have any exhibits to be the tiebreaker. So it's best to just agree that the marriage has become insupportable. And the uh, if they want to tell me how their spouse is abuse, emotionally abusive, all they're t- all they're proving to me is that the marriage is bad. And that's why they're talking to divorce lawyers. So you, really, they didn't really accomplish much. So you mentioned wanting to dive in on drug and alcohol and how that plays in. So tell us your thoughts on that. Okay. All right. So in my office, I have this big vinyl poster. It says no drugs, no alcohol, no debt. So we're dealing with three things, drugs, alcohol, debt, D-A-D. I call it like dad, dad's rule, dad's rule. Uh, It's not a... Uh, I want to say the actual cause of divorce, but it's always drugs, alcohol, and debt always seem to be in the picture, always seem to be in the fact pattern somewhere. And I'm not saying uh, there's causation, but but there is a correlation. And again, correlation, if we go back to the LSAT, correlation does not necessarily imply causation, but drugs, alcohol, and debt always seem to be inside the picture. And the marriages that do not have that are following dad's rule seem to not be going through a divorce. So what I try to tell people is uh, remember in college, the uh, college professor would use a whiteboard and write the, an X axis and a Y axis and give you a curve about something. Usually the X axis is time uh, and the Y axis is like, like money. And then you know like the curve is like supply and demand. Well, think of it that uh, X axis is time. The Y axis is uh, likelihood of success in the marriage. The higher the on the y-axis, uh, the higher likelihood of getting a divorce. Da- very low on the um, on the x-axis is uh, a healthy relationship. So likelihood of divorce, the higher. So the and the curve would be the stress curve. So no no marriage is perfect. No no marriage is going to have a perfectly flat curve at the bottom where we're able to just go forward in time. No stress. Uh, every marriage has stress, uh, but when when that stress curve starts spiking too high, then it's eventually going to hit the uh, a point where the point of no return, and that's where I get the phone call and they schedule a consultation. So, what can we do to flatten that curve? I think, in my opinion, I think there's three things we can do. Me personally, I, I don't don't like alcohol. I, that's something I removed from my life. But I, in my clients, I do see that it seems to be a factor. And in my opinion, and I'm not a medical professional, but I would argue that alcohol use disorder tends to spike the curve up and to the point where one of the spouses is forced to call the divorce lawyer and schedule a consultation with me. Also, drugs. 
I'm not advocating for legalization of anything, but uh, I don't think the marijuana, I don't think that's really a big issue, but it's more like the uh, maybe methamphetamines, uh, cocaine, PCP, heroin, like the more serious stuff using drugs like, like, like that um, and, or abusing alcohol and also debt. Uh, a lot of my divorces, uh, there's so much, a lot of it just has so much credit card debt there's really at that point, there's no, no assets to divide. It's just a ton of debt. So I think if we can be more mindful about drugs, alcohol, and debt in our life, then I think it's possible to flatten the stress curve. So you can remove drugs, alcohol, and debt from your life, but you're, you're never going to have a perfectly stress-free marriage. But at least you can keep that curve flat enough where you can go into old age and grow old, fat, and happy with your spouse. <laughs> so we're just about out of time, but one question that I like to ask everyone that comes on the podcast is, if you could give one piece of advice to young family lawyers, what would it be? Uh, I think a lot of uh, maybe the young lawyers, and I was guilty of this, um, they, maybe they get a little too emotionally attached. Uh, I think the uh, best advice I can give anybody is a remind them they don't live in a vacuum. Uh, it's it's okay to have a mentor. It's okay to reach out to other people for advice. They're not, if anything, people would respect you and like you more for it. So, you know, I'll, I'll uh, some of the older lawyers, um, they they might I might be more tech savvy than them, but they they know how to get things done. And uh, it's also they they remind me of just little things like one of the best pieces of advice from an older lawyer was. If you answer the phone after 6 p.m., or if you answer the phone on the weekend, you you just gave that client permission to call you whenever they want. That was something that didn't really resonate with me at first, and I kind of learned the hard way. But now, uh, after that, I, I I learned it's better to listen to the older lawyers, and they're 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 full of wisdom, and they're they're always. Um, I, I haven't met an older lawyer who who refuses to mentor me in some way. So. Take, take advantage of that. That would be my best advice, honestly. So where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you? Oh, good. good okay. Go to my website, uh, Chris Meyer Law Firm, and uh, go to my articles, videos, uh, podcasts. It's right there at the top right. Just just check it out. Uh, most of my uh, podcasts are about mindfulness. I, I go into breathing techniques, how to be present in the moment. Uh, a lot of us with... Uh, going through stressful family law issues where we're, we're always thinking about something that's uh, in the future or in the past, we're focusing on our past regrets or our future anxieties. But if you're focusing on your past regrets and your future anxieties, one place you're not is in the present. Uh, I think that's probably, and that's one of the uh, big things I like to share with people is just how to kind of bring it back to the present. So they're able, and also the importance of, judging a situation in the present uh, or without judgment. So that, that's something I like to hit on. And a lot of my uh, my listeners tend to appreciate that. And I, I tie it into family law and uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, take a second and leave us a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. The Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.